Hey everyone, thanks for joining Feed Me Your Construction Content with your host and co-host, Carolyn McMahon and Joshua McMahon. It's good to be back. We are currently in the middle of the Caribbean, enjoying a week-long vacation. Much needed, I'll add. Definitely. But we wanted to get some content out. We didn't have time to record a podcast, so what we did this week was we actually took the audio from a panel that I spoke on last December in Phoenix, Arizona for the Housing Transformation Summit. This episode is led by Monica Wheaton with ECI Mark Systems, Ed Hawk, who's with the Shin Group, and David Burley, who is also with the Shin Group. On this panel, we focused on three different topics, people, product, and systems. Myself, I spoke about the people side of the business and how to improve our culture of continuous improvement. Ed spoke of product and continuous improvement with product. And David spoke on systems. The episode that you are currently listening to is going to have myself and Ed Hawk speaking, and then David speaking half of his portion of the panel. We've broken up our podcast into two episodes just because of the length. David will wrap us up in episode two, as well as a question and answer at the end of the panel. We hope you enjoy this week's two-part podcast release. We think this episode is chock full of valuable content, maybe not anything transformational in nature, but maybe some of the basic stuff that we've we've lost sight of and we need to get back to. I'm also sharing in the notes the location where you can find the, the full video on the YouTube channel if you want to watch the video version of this. Oh, I love that. I love that. This is establishing a culture of continuous innovation on structures and construction. This presentation today is really going to be focused on working with people, working with your product, and working with technology to continue to build and uh, innovate as you're building your homes and to continue to find those efficiencies as you're building. These are This was the description that was on there. Today on my panel, and I'm not going to be talking for too much because I know we have a very full presentation. I want to introduce, uh, I'm Monica Wheaton, like I said. We've got Joshua McMahon, Ed Hawk, who's a senior consultant at Builder Partnerships, and David Burley, a consultant from BOQ Virtuoso. So I'm actually going to go ahead and turn the slides over now to Joshua to talk about the people aspect of this presentation. For me, is establishing goals centered around the improvement and stick to one to three goals. I think as home builders, sometimes we make a mistake of, wanting to conquer the world at one time, going from 25 homes to 150 homes or some other massive number versus focusing on one to three things at any given time and then investing the necessary time into uh, correcting and, and improving that goal. And that could be uh, a, a one-week timeline or, or a year or two years, whatever time it takes. Review this, this item weekly, monthly, and at every completion and continue to improve. Develop a scoreboard so everyone is engaged with the progress towards the goals. I think this is probably one of the biggest things. When you have a scoreboard and everybody can see how their individual input is affecting the output of the company, how they're working towards achieving that company goal, they're more bought in and more invested in supporting your goals and what the company is aiming to to achieve. Uh, key thing. Next key thing is making adjustments towards your progress. As you're growing and as you're learning from different challenges or opportunities that you're faced with. Be comfortable with making changes. I think as leaders, it's okay to make a mistake, own that mistake, make the correction, and move forward in a different direction. Oftentimes, we find ourselves not wanting to let go of an idea that we had because we think it's our idea. And if I admit that I made a mistake, then 
you're going to think less of me as a leader, less of me as a manager. And I'll tell you, as far as building a, a culture of continuous improvement, that's the worst attitude we can have. Show your, your people, your team that you're vulnerable and you make mistakes too. And they'll start to open up and really grow and that your company will, will really hit the next level. Uh, trade partners. <clears throat> I think trade partners in our industry, industry today is really just a good talking point. For purchasing side, we use the term trade partners to get a better price. But I want to challenge everybody to take a more active effort into building trade partners. Everybody we contract with is a subcontractor. But you build and you create trade partners. And that comes from asking your trades about their business. What's really going on with their business? What are their constraints? Where are they struggling? Um, what can you do to help them, right? Uh, how much lead time do they need to perform their activity? How many days do they need to perform the activity? You remember the times even today where I'm the builder and I say, it's going to take you three days to do this rough in? And you say, no, it's going to take me four. I said, no, that's good. Three days. Got it. And we move on. Every single house, that trade partner, that sub fails. And we look at him as he's the problem. No, we're, we're the problem. We created that problem. So don't go against what they're telling you they can do. Help them improve to get to the three days. Show them support and genuinely care about their success. I, I think I just touched on that a little bit. A big thing for me is sharing your corporate goals with them. We talk about our corporate goals, but are our, our, our corporate goals aligned with their corporate goals? If I want to grow from 50 to 100 homes next year, does my HVAC contractor have the ability to staff up and support that, that need, or do I need to go find another trade partner to help facilitate that? Don't take a good trade partner and ruin them because I like them and I, I want to go to 100 homes. So, so be okay with going and find another one. Your trade will actually thank you for it. Maybe not in the moment because he, he doesn't want to lose any work, but he will come back and thank you for it. Empower your team and your trades. I think this is probably the biggest thing that everybody should focus more on. Myself as, as a director of construction, I need to make every decision, right? But that's not actually right. I don't need to make the decisions. I should be able to fly to Phoenix and do a conference and sit on a panel with, with this great group of people and speak to you while well, my team is empowered to make the decisions they need to make and continue moving the machine forward. And when they have questions, I should make myself available to answer those questions. So during the break, there was a, a gas line that's not buried deep enough, so we're creating a problem with flat work. I took that phone call, asked him what his thoughts were. He said what he wanted to do. I empowered him to move forward because he's making the right decision. Now, he's going to feel strong, and that's an assistant construction manager making these high-level decisions, but I don't need to make every decision for him. And, and let me touch on this. I trust that he's going to make mistakes. I trust that he's going to make the wrong decision, and I'm going to support him to get him through that wrong decision and come out on the other side. Empower them to make the decisions. Trust that they'll make mistakes and support them to get them to the next level. That's how we're going to create the next generation of trade partners and, and team members. And that's how you prevent uh, people from leaving, too. They'll be with you forever. And then one other thing on this one, ask your customers how their experience was. Customer surveys, we really just want to see the fives and tens or whatever your scale is. But what's the real feedback in it? It's just information. Receive that information. Apply the information. Maybe that's your, your quarterly goal is to improve quality. A uh, big thing for us right now is trim, right? We're getting beat up on trim on our surveys. So we went back and talked with our purchasing and, and the president of our division said, if we spend $300 more, $300 more per home, we can have a better quality trim. No brainer. Let's spend the 300 bucks. The customer's telling us what to do. That's an improvement we can make in real time and find another area to make that reduction in price, right? So that's, 
a culture of continuous improvement where everybody's in, on board and everybody's bought in. And we're going to win that customer because they're going to say that we, we listen to their feedback. Steps to getting started, analyze your process, communicate, purchasing quality schedule. I'll tell you the big thing is communication. Communication is everything in our business. We absolutely suck at communication in our business. And we have every means and uh, way to, to get you whatever information I need, and we still, we still fail. We have to communicate more effectively, and we have to be, we have to listen to understand, not listen to respond. So I think those are the key things, active listening. Review what you currently track. Can't hit on that enough. Identify and discuss current choke points. I'm sure nobody has choke points in their business today because everything's running like a top. <laughs> but identify those choke points and work on ways to work around those choke points. Don't just push everybody through the choke point. How do I solve it? Where, where, am, I, where am I getting hemmed up and how do I get around it? Again, speak with your trades. What's your trade going to tell you? The individual physically running the ductwork knows more about your home than we do. Ask that individual, how do I build a better home? And revise your current schedule and budgets to re reflect improvements. Constantly improving, reviewing each cost code, reviewing each activity. Is it necessary and, and improving that stuff? Showing support for your trade contractors. Take the time to learn what's required. I think these are all touched on. Leverage technology to improve communications. This, this is a big piece that I think we are failing in our industry. I think we're 20 years behind still, even though we have the technology at our fingertips. We just, we, we're not failing to use it. We thought that we could take the technology and give it to a 50-year-old or 60-year-old superintendent that's building homes for his entire life and say, now you're going to build homes with this phone. Good luck. That's a failed, that's a failed project. We need to bring in people to help educate and teach this next crop, this next crop, and then bring in new, um, you know, not per se younger, but, but individuals are more technology savvy and teach them how to build homes through the technology and then teach them how to make those decisions. And, and the biggest thing for me is I always invest in win-win relationship. I want to pass it on because I don't want to take up too much time because it's got some good stuff. So the one thing you mentioned was the 300 hours in trim. We talk about this a lot. The 300 hours in trim, not only did you get more customer satisfaction, your, your, your warranty probably went down more than 300 hours. Yeah, the warranty will definitely go down. The painter was constantly complaining about the additional work that he had to spend on the trim. The trim carpenter complained about the trim because of the additional work they had to do. So it's really not $300. $300 is just the number that we track. It's a very misleading number. <clears throat> so I'm going to focus a little more on the field and the process. And Dave and I do a lot of work together, so mine will kind of dovetail into Dave's. This last year, I've never talked about lumber as much in this last year as I ever have in my life. And by the way, I started working for my football coach who was a builder when I was 15 years old. So I've been carrying lumber for a very long time. I've never talked this much about lumber. So the problem is, I gotta, I gotta fix my, my field, how I am estimating lumber, how I am designing houses. What we do is we just decide how to design a house. Somebody does an estimate, but nobody shares it with anybody, okay? Meanwhile, us as builders are dropping $50,000 on the ground out on site, and we don't manage it. We don't talk, we don't think about it, okay? What I want you to do is teach your trades, your, your, your field team, what to look for. The first thing is when Dave and I were talking before I came here, Dave spent a lot of time in Phoenix a long time ago. And he told me there's a lot of panels and trusses down here. Way back in my previous life, I worked for a builder who did nothing with panels and trusses. I also spent time working at a panel plant because I was an ex-carpenter. So one of the things I want to do is I want to start looking at the cost of my components. If you don't ask about the cost of components, you're just getting a giant bid. 
And what's in that bid? You have no clue. It's just a number. It's going to tell you it's $20,000 for panels or 15 for trusses, whatever. I'm going to break that down. Okay, the other thing that's going to happen is, depending on how I build a house and assemble a house, I'm affecting how much time it takes to frame that. I was just in Indianapolis a couple weeks ago, and I, and I pointed out all the bad designs that were causing the framer time. Sat down with the framer and asked him, if I straighten this out, how much time would you have? By the way, that was a lot of time. It was about 32 hours for a really poorly designed second floor over top of a roof. So look at that kind of stuff, okay? It really adds up. Another thing we don't do in, in when, the, when the lumber crisis hit, if you were sole sourced, you were stuck with that one person, right? You had, a, you had one rep, and you better stay tight with them. If I ha always have multiple reps, I can compare the different bids, get different ideas. If you didn't do that in the down before the lumber crisis, you weren't going to be able to do it, okay? Um, another thing we start doing is make things a little easier. I want to break things down in the estimate and how it gets delivered into sub bundles. It may come out in one load, but when out, I want each package kind of sent out by itself and then band it back together again. First of all, then I can teach the framer, stop on doing the whole pile. What was happening when two by fours were $12 a stud? They were walking off the job sites, right? So I want to do is I want to keep everything bundled and I want to teach my superintendents and my framers about that. Share with them. I also want to have it separated by use. Again, David, I can do a great estimate, but if I don't share this with the team, I got no chance of the framer doing this. I drop $50,000 on the, on the ground and then tell them what to do with it. And we wonder why we have 10% variances. Depending on where you are, I like having a preferred method of how lumber is being delivered. And by the way, I ask this all the time doing seminars and doing on-site on assignments. Nobody usually has a scope of work for a lumber delivery. We just tell them, go drop $50,000 on, on the ground, thank you very much, and tell me when the next increase is. you got to tell them how you want it. If, I, if they start delivering how I want it, you actually help them because they don't more have any more hot loads, hot deliveries. The hot deliveries kill them, by the way. Every time your framer calls you up at 3 o'clock and says, I need this tomorrow morning by 7, you just cost that lumber company a couple hundred hours if you're lucky. You're not becoming the builder choice in your market. So I want to have this lumber load delivered in a manner the framer can actually use it. Okay? In my, my PO, the first thing my PO is a silk plate. Why is the silk plate on the bottom? That's the way it was on your PO. That's how they stacked it. So I want to think about how I want these things bundled and banded. And I want them labeled, by the way. I have a, I have a specific way of doing it. I adjust this a little bit from how I do it. From my market in the Northeast, a little bit different. But I want to have things delivered in order. If you're on a, on a, on a foundation of some sort, not a porch slab, I want my first board deck on the top. Why? That's the first thing the framer has to do. Pull it off and use it. If I have first floor wall panels, okay, that's next. Or the, the disassembled material is coming that way. In a market, we have second floor decks. That's labeled. It's probably still in the same lumber load, but I want it labeled accordingly so they know what they're, what's being delivered and what's being used. And by the way, it's all labeled, okay? The other thing is, if, I'm, if you can get a lumber yard to give you your, your LVLs, your headers, and everything else pre-cut and labeled, that's expensive material. I do that all the time. I want them labeled by, by floor section. Second floor walls. If I'm using LVLs in roof trusses, where are they coming? By the way, they come with the trusses, not with, with the walls. By the time they get to the trusses, if you put them in the walls, they're gone. Thousands of dollars gone. The roof load, depending on how it's being done, I like that coming at the end if I'm a trust builder at the end. We're working in Louisiana next week with a builder down there. His roof system's coming out in advance. Very expensive, long lengths of material. By the time he gets down to it, it's all got gone. It's all cut up. 
Framers love coming up with long pieces of material. I don't understand, but they do it. I want it all done that way. So organize it the way you build in your market, okay? The next thing is the lumber delivery. I just told you, you know, in, in, for me, one of my custom homes in my market, the highest was $90,000 for a lumber load for a 4,000 square foot house. You think I'm dropping 90 grand on the ground and not counting it? Yeah, we're counting it. Who's counting it? First of all, the lumber companies have gotten smarter. They're actually sending, taking pictures and having the inventory sheet double checked. There's the guy who's loading it in, in the back, bunking, and then there's a truck driver who's second, second checking it. And a lot of times they're taking pictures now. They're doing better than we are because we're always blaming them for, for short loads. So in my old world, in my current world, my superintendents will check loads. In my scope of work, my framer was required to check the loads. I want multiple people on that, okay? The other thing I do is I want all that lumber rebundled when possible at night. When lumber was at its all-time high, all in my market, we have forklifts everywhere. The framer's putting the forklift blades on top of it. People are coming by and just stealing loads right and left. That was a lot of money. One of our clients had a whole load picked up by a white truck that afternoon. The framers were there. Guess what? It wasn't the lumber company. They stole the whole lumber load. Just came by and picked it up. So I want to be very careful how I treat my material. Okay? Another thing is we don't tell our superintendents, let alone our framers, how to frame a house. But we walk, walk houses all the time. I see constantly different floors, different buildings being framed differently. Have yourself a book of details. Okay, Dave, Dave's working on this right now for one of our clients. We'll have a book of details exactly how they're framing the house. How is the header being framed? Single stud, double stud, double jacks, two foot on center, 16 on center. What is it? Two by six wall here. As we do plan reviews, we see all the time there's no way that they can actually frame the house because there's no information on it. The builder in this August, I sent Dave the plan to have it estimated before I went there so I could walk the house. He goes, dude, nothing to estimate. There's nothing on the plan. There's no details. We had no floor joists. We had no wall details, no truss details, nothing that we expect everybody to be able to deliver. I got to teach everybody in the field how to build this stuff, okay? The other thing is I like to share the lumber list. I want everybody to have the lumber list. The framer gets the lumber list in advance. I also want to tell them where I'm using this material. I also want to get the framer to give me feedback, okay? I got a 3,500 square foot custom house coming up in a couple weeks. I've already met with the framer, already got the feedback. I want to make sure that everybody knows how the material is going to be used, okay? I got to teach everybody the process. In larger companies, the trend has been on, on, on bigger companies, have somebody specializing in this. It's too much money. On average, Dave and I, when a good builder, are finding 5% from a good builder. More than that, on, on, on builders who are not managing the process. Okay? So after the, the house is estimated and released, the next thing that happens is I am now giving that, and now the superintendent owes, owns that list and that responsibility. It's up to the superintendent at that point to manage the, the lumber, the materials, and the framer. But we don't, we do a poor job as we don't teach them all this. We just don't. We gotta teach them all this. I wanna hold them accountable. I want them to know, know how the house is going together, how it's supposed to be framed, how, how I estimate the house. I also need the superintendent to have working knowledge of all his, of his empowerment documents, all the vendor agreements, any trade contracts, scopes of work. Another thing that went away a long time ago were checklists. It's coming back now. I was a big fan on checklists because every frame gets punched out and checked the same exact way. My framer, who's, who's, his crew is Hispanic, the checklist, he did it in Spanish and English. When he's finishing backing out of that house, I don't want him leaving and not having everything done. 
He wanted the checklist. He took my checklist and made it bilingual. It's real easy to do. So the next thing is my superintendent's 100% responsible for all the placement of material, protecting the material, you know, where it's being delivered. In my world, we send out the plot plan and a PDF circling where it's going, exactly what's going. i got to plan where all this material is going. If you're doing tight lot lines, there's no room for error. I don't want to move. I don't want to waste that motion. I don't want moving material, okay? As I'm using it, I want to make sure the, frame, the superintendent framer understand how I'm using material, don't unbundle things, and never touch a lumber load for a different house. Never, ever cross-collateralize material, okay? Then at the end, I want to check for all the excess material, get it bundled, and return. And I've got to start looking at those lumber lists so I can adjust those lumber lists going forward. Production millers, what we do is we adjust the lumber list, but we don't realize we have 20 houses and released and have that mistake 20 houses all across the county. I want to go look at those and make those adjustments in some way, shape, or form. And I want to get those, those, those credits back. There's lots of money. I also want to look for the waste. I want to go dumpster dive. When I was in Indianapolis, I've never seen so much waste on a framed house, 2,200 square feet, panels, trusses, but had a 30-yard dumpster worth of scrap. They were just chewing up material, but nobody ever managed it. Said to the superintendent, where's all this material coming from? Well, we, they send a lot out so we don't run out. Bad answer, by the way. Okay, <laughs> That was expensive material. So I want to make sure my superintendent can teach my framers how, I'm, how I designed my house, Okay, how it was supposed to be assembled, the details. I spent a lot of time and energy putting this house together in a certain way so it would be cost-effective and well-designed so I don't have callbacks. I can teach my superintendents how to do that. I was taught way back when I have to know the plan inside and out. Any house that I sell right now, I can pretty much tell you how it's being assembled, joist, everything. So the, the last thing is I want to make sure I'm using a frame punchless checklist. All my supers are using the same, same checklist all over the place. So that's it for me, and I'm off to Dave now. Uh, so my name is Dave Burley. I wanted to talk to you about how we can use technology primarily in the world of estimating. Before I start, you're going to hear me say the word UPM over and over again. UPM is a purchasing philosophy. It's unit price measurement. Basically says instead of doing lump sum bids, get a price for every part and piece that goes into your home, and your bid is effectively the number of times you're going to use that part times the cost of the part equals your bid. When we talk about estimating, for cost control, we're really looking at two different types of estimating. The first one is the more traditional. It's doing 2D UPM bill of quantities. In a 2D, uh, we're using, generally nowadays, we're using a digitizer or we could scale it out. One thing that we do like to see now is if you're going to stay with 2D estimating, is at least start to transfer over to assembly-based estimating. If you've ever done a 2D estimate, you'll find that by the time you're finished with the plan, you've retraced the same thing 10, 12, 15 times for different components. Uh, Assembly-based estimating just says, let's trace that once and build everything that goes in. If I'm going to be doing exterior walls for my framing, why don't I capture my drywall, my insulation, my exterior cladding, get anything and everything I can into that wall in one shot so that we're becoming more efficient Two, it also helps make sure that your estimates are equal to one another. There's nothing worse than taking two similar houses and getting two totally different numbers because you did things a little bit differently in the estimate from one to the other. Uh, the assembly base takes that out of the equation. Like Ed said, proper details are key. At least once a day, we'll review a 
plan for someone in a film. Sorry, we, we couldn't even begin to estimate this because there's no details. Anytime that we're making assumptions when we're estimating, we're just opening up that checkbook. If we're not telling people specifically how we want things done, then we're just putting ourselves on the hook for whatever they've decided to do instead. Third part is we always want to make sure that we document our standards. And a couple of reasons we do that. One is, if I can do an estimate, Ed could do an estimate, Josh could do an estimate, we're all going to come up with roughly the same thing because we all follow the same standards as we are doing that work. We also want our trade partners to know how we did our estimate. And that helps alleviate that back and forth once you, uh, as you're switching over to UPM, your trade partners are going to push back and say, no, I came up with a lot more drywall than you did. Uh, if we shared with them how we came up with our number, that helps alleviate that argument because now we're just dealing with basic geometry. And the answer is the answer. And then the fourth part is we want to take how we're going to use that material and include that in our scopes of work as well. So we have these details, but we also want to make sure that we're making it clear to the trade partner, this is how we use our material. As costs continue to rise, we're trying to become thinner and thinner on what we're allowing for waste. The easiest way for us to help manage that is to let the trade partner know what that expectation is so that they understand we're not taking the longest board every time to cut that foot that you needed. Uh, we want to make sure we're spelling that stuff out so that they're really clear on what we're looking for. As technology has improved, we started looking also at 3D material modeling. BIM modeling, uh, when you're doing it on the architecture side, uh, we can also do that in the estimating side as well. So that it's not the full investment of getting everything into BIM. We can model it much faster when we're doing it for estimating needs. Really critical for those major cost codes. It really helps out with lumber. It can help us out with our foundations, our drywall. We're going to capture some stuff that isn't really all that impactful. But again, because we're using assemblies, we're going to go ahead and capture everything that's touching those walls. If you're considering 3D modeling, the biggest portion that we look at today is you want to make sure that that model is viewable in the field. Having a nice, beautiful model that you can look at on your computer doesn't mean anything if your framer can't pull out his phone or his iPad and look at it also uh, to understand what you were thinking. And then same as in our 2D, anything that we put into practice on that 3D, we want to make sure that we're spelling it out, uh, that people understand what our expectations are. That is a wrap of episode one of this two-part series. We hope you found the information in this podcast valuable and you'll tune into the second part. Yeah!